Living Lord Jesus, we thank you so much tonight for this opportunity to together as your people, to glory in what you've done for us, to celebrate your death on our behalf on the cross, to celebrate your resurrection, giving us eternal life, to celebrate your ascension to the Father's side. Lord Jesus, you are awesome and wonderful, and we're so glad to be together tonight to celebrate all you have accomplished for us. Lord Jesus, as we gather here tonight, you know the state of each of our hearts. You know tonight, Lord, that some of us feel indifferent to you just now. We've drifted from you and we feel a little bit cold towards you. But we praise you tonight, Lord Jesus, that you still love us and long for us to be drawn back. Father, we thank you tonight that there's some of us here and we feel zealous for you, delighted to be one of your people, overjoyed by the cross. And Lord, we thank you tonight that you love us as well and you want us to enjoy you even more. Lord, I pray tonight that whatever state our heart is in, that we would know that you stand at the door of our lives and knock. And that if we hear your voice tonight and respond, you'll come in and eat with us. Lord Jesus, our prayer tonight is that we would have a closer fellowship with you our prayer tonight is that we would hear your voice. Our prayer tonight is that we would grow to love you more and enjoy you better. So bless our time together, Lord Jesus. We pray that it be a good night together in your presence. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, it's great to see so many students here tonight. And I'm going to invite a student to come up. And that student is Scott Monteith. Scott, where are you? Uh, I'm just going to interview Scott, and hopefully what Scott shares will be helpful for you guys who are in the midst of study just now. Um, so Scott, you have just begun, just take the mic, take the mic off. Or, uh, uh, Scott, you've just begun your PhD, um, so tell us first of all what that's in before I ask you the first question. What are you doing your PhD in? It's in cancer research, so okay. I'm attempting to look at colorectal cancer patients who are resistant to their treatment and see if we can look at their genes and see if there's anything that we can do about overcoming that resistance to treatment. Brilliant. So you've had quite an interesting, I guess, student journey. Mm. Um, it didn't start in Belfast. So tell us a little bit about your journey as a student and then I guess how you have managed to keep God at the center of your journey and the center of your life through your time at university? Yeah, so uh, just before I uh, started, well, as I had applied to university and then the summer before going to university, um, I started to um, consider that God might be leading me towards ministry, um, which was not a helpful thing having applied to all um, biological sciences um, courses. So um, I, maybe quite naively said, if I get the grades to go to university, I will just go to university, and I got the grades, so I went to university. Um, but as uh, throughout that whole, uh, so I went to, um, sorry, Trinity uh, College Dublin um, for a year then, and basically every, um, <laughs> just about every month um, that I was there, uh, I, stuff came up um, that were opportunities um, to serve in, um, areas that I didn't really think would come my way, um, ways that I could explore ministry a little bit more, um, and even in my own um, devotional uh, time and that kind of thing, uh, it kept coming up that maybe um, ministry was the thing that I was most excited about and that God was equipping me for. So I 
came to the end of my um, year in Dublin and I was looking for an internship and um, I genuinely stumbled across uh, Ravenhill in that time uh, after looking at about 20 other churches. I actually originally said that I didn't even want to meet Marty to try and talk about it, um, but it happened anyway and Marty gave the greatest sales pitch ever for uh, um, an internship where he said, um, yeah, it's not really great. There's no one here your age. Um, the church has kind of been dying the past while. I'm not sure you'll really like it. But, um, I have no idea what you're going to be doing. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, but we'd be glad to have you. Um, <laughs> and apparently that was enough for me to say yes. Um, so I actually took a year out of university then to do an internship here in Ravenhill and uh, came to the conclusion at the end of that that I thought God was leading me towards ministry, but needed a degree first anyway, so I decided to do uh, a degree in Queens uh, in biomedical science. Uh, I wanted to change universities because I basically fell in love with the church here, uh, with the people here, uh, and was excited about what God was doing in this community. So uh, I messaged Queens very last minute and was like, hey, would you take me in? And they said yes. Um, so yeah, I just finished biomedical science. There. And obviously biomedical science, it's one of the degrees where you have to actually go into class quite a lot. There's a lot of work to it, yes, like a lot, a lot of work to it. And obviously I've known you for the past four years and seen how much work you did for university and all of that stuff. How, how did you manage to keep God central in the midst of your studies? I mean, how did you manage to do that so well, Scott? Uh, yeah, I think uh, a big part of it was actually I, um, since coming here, I've got involved in a, a discipleship group, um, which has been so helpful of that regular time where you can actually be really open and vulnerable with the people around you and say, look, if it's a really busy time, look, I'm really struggling at the minute and I'm not actually... Um, maybe like uh, there were times where I wasn't in a, in, a, in a great space and I needed actually people to come alongside me and encourage me uh, and lift me up in those times. And so that has been such a, such a blessing to have um, throughout the past number of years. Uh, and also just um, like God has been so gracious to give us uh, his word and chooses to, to speak to us and give us uh, the time where we can speak to him in prayer and just those regular times of being in the Bible uh, in the mornings and praying to him throughout the day has been such a, um, like, I think it's the thing that we always say in church, of, oh, you should read your Bible and mm -hmm. pray, but it's like those are genuine means of grace that we have um, that we can turn to at any time whenever. Um, and it's like, that's, that's what the fuel is um, to go about our days. That's the reminder that I have, that whenever I go out into university, like that's my mission field. That God has given me these people to, to come alongside and he's given me the gift of, um, lots of Christian friends to come alongside me as well. So I think it's been a, a combination of using the disciplines that he's actually given us grace to, to use um, and also um, Christian friends and my church family here as well, which have lifted me up through those times. Great, thanks, Scott. Um, now, just to kind of let you know, I do think Scott is slightly superhuman. Um, do you know one of those people who can do a million things and just manage to spin all the plates? Um, but Scott, like the past four years, after your internship, the past three years, you've been hugely involved in the life of this church. Um, obviously, you're from Kilkeel, but you've made the decision, I guess, to make this your church and to be really involved. I mean, how have you benefited maybe from being part of a church, perhaps more than maybe CU, or just generally how has being part of a church helped you at university, or what difference has that made in your life? Yeah, I think that was something that I realized um, in my year out where church was my only option really, um, was that model that uh, 
Timothy, is it Timothy or Titus? Um, talks about of the older men teaching younger men, older women teaching younger women. Like I was, uh, um, I benefited from that so much of having people who have gone through that period already to pass on the wisdom because I find even in university, it's easy to, I don't know, just get into the habit of complaining to one another about how many assignments you've got um, or just not seeing a way out of things. Whereas to have people who have gone through that and for them to pass on their wisdom was like, yeah, it was hugely encouraging. Um, and also to, um, I don't know, I, there was a while where I was trying to go to my home church um, and then um, like study in Belfast and it just felt very disconnected that I didn't actually have somewhere that I could plug into because I wasn't going to drive an hour and a half to get back home to go to something during the middle of the week. So it was really helpful then to have a base in Belfast where I could um, I could go along to the stuff midweek. I could serve in areas where, um, like in this church, and I could also be fed, like in the church as well. And it just felt, it felt like I actually had a family to belong to in the church rather than, like, I, I love the church and Kilkeel that I was at, and it was a good community, but I was never going to feel like I was really part of that whenever I was there yeah. just on a Sunday. I'm going to slightly embarrass Scott and maybe some of the other students who, uh, we've had a number of people here who've, decided at university to come to Ravenhill to make it their church, to get involved, and then they've stayed on uh, when they've become young professionals. But just to kind of embarrass you, I mean, you and, and those students, you don't understand just the difference that you guys have made. Um, and I really want to encourage you students, um, and I don't necessarily mean this church, okay? I'm not saying Ravenhill, but I want to encourage you, if there's a church you can be involved in in Belfast, uh, and you can give some time, and you can get involved, you will help that church transform you will bring life you will bring joy uh, and you bring so many skills and gifts and abilities that you probably don't even know you have uh, and i just really want to encourage you guys not necessarily this church although you know we'd love to see you but but if you're thinking about it if you're thinking about it please think about it more about getting plugged into a church in belfast uh, and giving yourself to, to some of the work that's going on there scott what can we be praying for you i guess now that you're doing your PhD and, and the stage. Are you still, ministry still on the cards? Yeah. So, okay, yeah. great. Um, so. yeah, so <laughs> I guess great. Further, further clarity on that would be great as well. Um, but one of the things, um, so going from undergraduate, I was like, I was convinced that going into biomedical science, I would be maybe the only Christian uh, there on the course. But I was really blessed to have like a good group of Christian friends uh, in my course as well. Like there were non-Christian friends that I had there too, but like they were a good group. Um, whereas that is not the case uh, in my office um, now as a PhD student. Uh, and they are um, a lot more hostile um, to, to Christianity. Um, so actually having wisdom and discernment of where to, to speak truth uh, and... Um, not to go all guns blazing to the point where they're like, let's not talk to Scott the weirdo. <laughs> um, so yeah, just wisdom and discernment really uh, in those times of when to speak out and what to say would be really helpful because it's one of those where you kind of feel like you want to like, I don't know, like conflict of like, I want to speak truth here, but also I do not want to be that weirdo and that one that they all hate. Um, so that's the, that's the main prayer point really and yeah um life is feeling consistently busy as well um so prayer of um what to um invest in and what to step back from would be would be great as well good yeah well let me pray for you and then you can put the mic back and go sit down let me pray father thank you so much for scott and i thank you for the 
other students who over the past number of years have come here and got involved and given so much to the life of our church. And Father, we just pray for Scott as he goes into the office every day and engages with these folk who are hostile to the gospel, hostile to the things of God. And I pray that you would give Scott wisdom, wisdom on what to say and what not to say. But I pray to you, Lord, that they would see something of you just through his life. I pray that through the way he treats them, through the way he reacts to things going wrong, to the way he reacts to people rubbing him up the wrong way. I pray, Lord, even that would be um, wonderfully strange in their eyes and would prompt questions as to why he acts in such a way. So Lord, give him opportunities to show Christ and to show Christ's love and also to speak of Christ. And Father, do pray for him in his busyness, um, trying to spin so many plates, trying to be wise on what to be involved in and what not to be. Lord, give Scott the wisdom to discern that. And would you lead him and direct him very clearly in that. But Lord, thank you for him and thank you for the many others who over the past few years have given themselves to the life of this church and other churches in Belfast and um, using their time and their talents and their treasure to build up your kingdom in this city. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's ask the Lord to speak to us and then we'll look at this passage. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the scriptures through which you speak to us and to all Christians of all generations. Um, we would ask tonight that as we come to look at this letter written to the church in Laodicea, that you would speak to us tonight here at Ravenhill. I pray you give us ears to hear what you say to us through this part of the Bible and give us hearts that will receive it and lives that will embrace it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, I have a four-year-old son called Micah, and about a month ago, Micah came to me and he said, Dad, whenever I grow up, I want to be, and I was expecting, you know, fireman, policeman, something like that. And he said, Dad, when I grow up, I want to be a hydrologist. And he's four. Now, don't embarrass you, but hands up if you know what a hydrologist is. Great, none of you. Okay, okay, it's two of you, two of you. Well done. You get the sweets at the end of the night. Great stuff. Uh, so a hydrologist, what is a hydrologist? A hydrologist is someone who studies water. So that's what a hydrologist is. So if you see Mike, you can say, how is the hydrology going? And you can ask him how he's getting on with that in P1, you know. But there you go. But we don't study water. But one of the things that I've often wondered about, and this week I had to look it up because of this sermon, is how water gets to our taps. I mean, does that ever keep anyone awake at light, thinking about these type of things? How do we get water to our taps? How does that happen? So this week I looked it up. Turns out that there's uh, massive suction pumps and they go into reservoirs and they go into rivers and they suck water out of these reservoirs and rivers. And the water is then sent to a water treatment plant and uh, it's filtered out and all the dirt's taken out of it. And then they add some chemicals into it to make it safe to drink. And then there's more big massive pumps and they pump water out into lots of pipes and it eventually comes to our homes and we turn the tap and there it is, clean, beautiful water. Marty, why on earth are you talking about this? Well, it's because of the city of Laodicea. You see, in the Roman world, water was delivered via aqueduct. If a city didn't have good water, then they built an aqueduct to a neighboring city and water came from another city into the city with no water. And Laodicea, it was a city which didn't have water. Laodicea had everything. It was a bit like Dubai. It was a rich city. It was full of affluence. It was a central banking city. In fact, there was an earthquake in Laodicea, and the whole city collapsed, 
And they didn't borrow money to rebuild it. They rebuilt it with their own money. It was a very affluent city. It was a very fashionable city. It was a city known for their fashion and they produced this very expensive and very fine black clothing. Very fashionable place to live. And it was also a city that was known for its medical advances. Laodicea was, was a city which had an amazing ability to produce ointments for eyes that healed them or made them feel better. Laodicea was a city that had it all. They were rich, they were fashionable, they were medically well off, but this was a city without water. And so where did they get their water from? Well, they got it from a neighboring city called Hierapolis. And in Hierapolis, it traveled about five miles, and then it came to the city of Laodicea. But there was a problem. And the problem was that the water in Hierapolis came from hot springs. The water sent from that city was really, really boiling hot. And it would travel down to Laodicea, and the people would turn on their taps, well, probably not, but you know, I don't know what they did to get it out of the aqueduct. But anyway, they would turn on the taps, they would take the, money from, take the, the water from the aqueduct, and they would drink it and they would spit it out because it was lukewarm. The water that came from Hierapolis, it wasn't hot enough to wash in. It was too cold to wash in, and likewise, it was too warm to drink. This water that they got in Laodicea, it was useless unless they cooled it down or unless they heated it up. It was lukewarm water. And so when Jesus says to the Laodicean Christians in verse 15, have a look with me there. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. They knew exactly what he meant. Jesus is saying to this group of Christians in this affluent city, listen folks, I know you. And my assessment of you is that you are lukewarm. You're lukewarm Christians. You're lukewarm in your faith. Now, we don't know what lukewarmness looked like for those guys living 2,000 years ago. We don't know what their lives looked like. But we can pretty much tell what lukewarm Christianity looks like today, can't we? It looks like indifference. It looks like apathy. It looks like no zeal. It looks like no excitement. J.D. Greer, who's a, a pastor in the States, he writes an article where he outlines eight kind of signs of lukewarm Christianity. He says that lukewarm Christians, number one, don't really want to be saved from their sin. They only want to be saved from the penalty of sin. In other words, lukewarm Christians, they want to be forgiven, but they don't want to repent. They want to live in their sin and be forgiven for it at the same time. J.D. Greer also says that lukewarm Christians are moved by stories about people who did radical things for Christ and yet they themselves do not do radical things. Lukewarm Christians read of these heroes of the past and how they stood for God or stood out for God or did great things for God, and they read those things and they say, that's brilliant. But in their day-to-day -day lives, they would never do anything so radical. They wouldn't even identify as a Christian in an office full of hostile people doing a PhD. J.D. Greer says that lukewarm Christians rarely, if ever, share their faith. They say they believe the gospel. They, they say they believe it's the only gospel that can save someone. But lukewarm Christians, J.D. Greer says, will never talk about it. They'll never share it. 
They'll never tell others. J.D. Greer says that lukewarm Christians think only about life on earth and never about the world to come and never about heaven. Their focus is solely on this earth and nothing else. J.D. Greer says that lukewarm Christians love their luxuries and rarely give in a sacrificial way. They don't give to the mission of the church. They don't give sacrificially to the needy and the poor around them. They like living in luxury. They like the comfortable life and prefer that than following the radical commands of Christ to love neighbor as self. J.D. Greer says that lukewarm Christians do not live by faith, but in fact structure their lives so they never have to. Lukewarm Christians are never in a position where they really need God to come through for them. They're never in a position where they're only and completely and solely relying on God for things. Instead, they structure their lives in such a way that they don't really need God at all in them. And then finally, J.D. Greer says that lukewarm Christians give God their leftovers and not their first and best. God is a second thought, a third thought, a fourth thought, a tenth thought. He's way down the list of their priorities. Lukewarm Christianity, it's Christianity with no zeal, it's with no passion, it's with apathy. It's Christians who believe that Jesus died for them, but it doesn't move them to love Christ more or do anything for him. Lukewarm Christianity is Christianity without awe, without amazement. And I'm sure tonight, as you sit here, that that some of you are lukewarm. Now, before you panic, I don't want you to panic right now if that's you, if it's just a season. We all have times, we all have seasons in life where we feel lukewarm. We all have seasons in life where we're apathetic. We all have seasons in life where we struggle. We all have seasons in life where we are lukewarm. But the problem is not so much if it's a season. The problem is if it's a settled state. And here in the church of Laodicea, it was a settled state. This was their normal temperature. If you get your, I'm sure you're fed up with doing this after COVID, but you've all done this through COVID. If you get your little digital thermometer out and you put it to your head, you know, that that thing with the thermometer, it'll read 37.4. That is your usual temperature. And if you were normally doing that and you were 39 or 40, there'd be something wrong. And here in the text, the Laodiceans, their normal temperature was lukewarm. That was the norm, not the exception. Now Jesus, he identifies this in them. He he highlights this uncomfortable truth to them. He says to them that they're lukewarm, but he doesn't leave them without hope. Because in verse 16, he makes it clear that Jesus is hoping that their temperature will change. Jesus makes it clear that his desire for them is that their temperature spiritually will change again. Have a look with me at verse 16. He says there, I wish you were either one or the other. Hey, church in Laodicea, my assessment of you is that you're lukewarm, but I just wish that you were one or the other. I wish you were a useful temperature. I wish you were like a lovely cool glass of water that would be refreshing, or I wish you were like a really nice hot bath that you could wash in. I just wish that your spiritual temperature was changed to a place of being useful. 
And I want to say to you tonight, if you're sitting here and, and you feel lukewarm, if you're sitting here and you feel apathetic, if you're sitting here and all your zeal is gone, I want you to know that Jesus' desire for you is not that you stay at this temperature. His desire for you is that you have a change in your spiritual temperature. His desire for you is not to remain steadily lukewarm. Before I get on to the details of maybe causes of lukewarmness and, and how to change, I think it's appropriate that we do take a look at Jesus' warning if we don't change the temperature. I think it's appropriate that we look at Jesus' warning if we decide to remain lukewarm in our faith. And again, remember, this is, this is written to your church rather than individuals, but individuals win it. So it's this, it's this complicated thing. And here this warning, I think, is for the church in general in the city of Laodicea. Because look what he says there. He says in verse 16, So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Um, earlier on in the week, Patty Casement and I were in the study there and we were chatting about the sermon coming up. And I said, Patty, I would love on Sunday night to have lukewarm tea and coffee served just before the service. And I said, but it'd feel bad asking the ladies to make that. It would waste their time. And then I thought, you know what? That would actually be a disaster because the floor would be stained after. Because you'd take one sip of it, wouldn't you? And you'd just, you'd spit it out. It's gross. Look, warm tea or coffee is absolutely gross. And it's spat out. And here Jesus says to this church, he says to them, listen, because you're lukewarm, if your temperature doesn't change as a congregation, I am going to spit you out of my mouth. It's a metaphor for closure. It's a metaphor for for shutting down. It's a metaphor for taking away their lampstand. It's a metaphor for, for getting rid of the church in Laodicea, that particular church. Why would Jesus close the church if people are lukewarm, if the congregations lukewarm? It's because whether or not you've thought about it or not, being lukewarm dishonors Christ. It dishonors Christ. And God he, he, he hates it. I want you to imagine, if you will, that you're in the military. Um, maybe some of you are, I don't know. I want you to imagine that you're in the military and um, you are out on an operation and, and you come into contact with the enemy and one of the enemy throws a hand grenade and the hand grenade lands right in front of you and the guy you're with. And this guy that you're with, he jumps onto the hand grenade with his body. And he takes the full impact of that hand grenade and he dies. Now I want you to imagine that after that, you just kind of go, yeah. all right. Hmm. Yeah, he died for me, yeah. There's something wrong there, isn't there? Can you imagine being at that funeral of that soldier and the father of that man comes up to you and he says, my son died for you, didn't he? And you go, yeah, yeah, 
Suppose he did. The father would feel sick, wouldn't he? The, the father would be furious. And that response would be so dishonoring to the soldier who died for you. And yet the God, the Son, came down from heaven to earth and he took on flesh and he lived a perfect life. And he died this horrendous death on the cross. And on the cross, not only was he going through physical pain, but he bore the wrath of God for our sin. Every last drop of it. What Christ has done for us is just beyond beyond words, beyond measure, beyond understanding. And for us as Christians to be like, meh, there's just something not right there. To be apathetic or lukewarm, that there's something just not right. And so the Lord, he says to the church in Laodicea, because you're lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. I'd rather you close as a church than dishonor my son. I'd rather not have you in that city. Now, it's been said that of all the seven letters to the churches in Revelation, that this is kind of the harshest, and it is. Um, when you read the other letters, there's kind of, you know, like there's this stuff you need to repent of, but here's some good stuff you're doing in this letter. There's not that. It's all just quite harsh. It's basically a letter of rebuke and not much else. There's glimmers of hope, but it really is a letter of rebuke. And sometimes facing rebuke is hard, but listen, rebuke is not given by Jesus here just to make this church feel bad. Rebuke is given because Jesus loves the people in this church and he longs for them to repent. And you see that again in verse 19. Look what Jesus says. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Listen, church, I'm, I'm not saying this to hurt you. I'm not saying this to tell you off. Listen, church and Laodicea, I'm telling you this because I love you. It's because I love you. Rebuke comes from a place of love, and I want you to change and repent. Imagine a, a mother or father who never rebuked their children. That wouldn't be loving, wouldn't it? would it? Imagine a child about to put their hand on, on a hot hob and the mother or father never told them off, don't do that, you'll burn yourself. Imagine the parent just let them go ahead and burn their hand, that wouldn't be loving, would it? Or if there's a child who, who's always making life difficult for someone else, making someone else's life a nightmare and, and the parent would know that that child's gonna have problems making friends in the future if they don't change, it would be unloving for the parent not to rebuke them. And here Jesus, he, he rebukes the church because he loves them and he wants them to change. Rebuke is out of love. And I just want to encourage all of you, whenever you listen to a sermon and the Lord rebukes you, please remember it's out of love. It's because he's your father who loves you. It's not to make you feel bad. It's not to make you feel bad about yourself. It's because he loves you. And he wants you to repent. Now, there's some of us here tonight, and maybe we feel pretty rebuked. <laughs> maybe we feel challenged. Maybe we feel like this sermon is kind of, why am I here tonight? Why did I bother coming? I feel so challenged. But my guess is there's a lot of us here tonight who would be on the other side of things. 
And we're actually sitting here, do you know what? I don't feel lukewarm. I'm here tonight and I'm zealous for the Lord. I love Jesus. I'm not indifferent. I'm delighted in the cross. I'm serving Christ. I'm involved in my church. I'm involved in CU. You know, I, I have been lukewarm before and I understand the seasons, but my spiritual temperature on the whole, it's pretty hot for the Lord. Well, can I say that's brilliant? That's really good. That's really, really positive. And that's really encouraging to hear. And so for you tonight, for those of you who are hot for the Lord, for those of you who are zealous, for those of you who love Jesus, um, what I want to do just now is to, to help you see what caused the Laodiceans to become cold. I want you to see what it was that, that caused them to become lukewarm so that you can avoid the path that they went down. And basically, they, they became lukewarm because they set all of their attention on the world around them and they took their eyes off God and off Christ. And there's a saying which says, you know, someone who's really zealous for the Lord, you know, there's this kind of derogatory saying that says, they're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. You ever heard that? It's kind of an older saying and people are zealous and they kind of point and say, that person's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. Well, here in Laodicea, it's the opposite. They were so earthly minded that they were no spiritual good. And you see this in verse 17. You see what Jesus says to them. Jesus says to them, listen, you're lukewarm and here's what you say. You say, I am rich, verse 17. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. These Laodiceans, they lived in the city that had it all. And these Laodicean Christians, they had it all. Their bank accounts were full. Their wardrobes were full of beautiful clothes. They had wonderful socialites. They had everything this world could offer. And look at the three things they said. They said, I am rich. Hey, I'm rich. Do you know what being rich does? It gives you a sense of security. If you have money in the bank, you feel secure because whatever problem life throws at you, you've got the money to fix it. And so these Laodiceans, they felt secure without God. They felt safe without God. They didn't need God for their security. And then if you look at verse 17, they said, I have acquired wealth. Now, they had acquired wealth, but they'd forgotten God in this. You see, the Bible says that God is the one who gives the ability to make wealth. And these Laodiceans, they didn't recognize that. I've done this all by myself. Aren't I wonderful? I've done this all by myself. God has had nothing to do with the wealth that I have in my bank account. God has had nothing to do with the job that I have. God has had nothing to do with my life. I have done this all by myself. They didn't acknowledge God in their life. They didn't acknowledge God in their success. They'd become practical atheists day by day. God didn't figure in their thinking. And then the last one, verse 17, they say, I do not need a thing. Oh, I don't need anything. I've got everything I need. I'm fully satisfied. I've got the money in my bank. I've got the, the clothes in my wardrobe. I've got my social life. I've got my friends. I've got my family. I just feel like I have got it all. I feel so satisfied and I don't need God for satisfaction anymore. 
see what's happened it's as they've got involved in the things of the world as they've acquired wealth as they've acquired comfort as they've acquired luxury they've lost their need for god yes they still go to church you know they still give their money into the offering at the end they still do all of that stuff but they've no spiritual fervor anymore they do not need god it's so nice to have uh, a lot of you students in tonight and um, my guess is that whenever you were heading off to university, that the people in your home church kind of prayed extra hard for you. They're heading off to Belfast, off to the big smoke. There's going to be people there drinking. There's going to be people there taking drugs. So they're going to be under so much pressure to, to, to lose their faith. My guess is you probably heard stuff like that at home, yeah? And then you've come to university, and it's kind of like the opposite, You've come to university and you've got this Christian union and there's hundreds of you. You've got your small group every week and you're feel supported. You're living in Christian halls and it's like you're surrounded by Christians and you're kind of thinking like, how could I possibly even lose my faith here because I'm just surrounded by Christians 24-7? And actually my guess is that for many of you, your faith is being built up. You're more zealous here than at home. You're more involved here than at home. You love Jesus more here than you did back home. Your faith is more alive here than it was back home. I wonder, is that true for you? My guess is for many of you it is. But let me just say to you tonight, the most dangerous time, the time that you will be tempted to lose your zeal is not at university. It's at the next stage. Because you're going to leave university. At university, you've got no money, so you really are dependent on God. At university, you live in terrible accommodation, so you definitely don't feel satisfied. At university, well, actually, some of you have bought a lot of clothes with your student loans, but most of you are just wearing the same stuff week after week, and you're kind of thinking, I don't feel satisfied. But whenever you leave university, the bank, the, your, your job is going to pay you every month. Money's going to come in every single month. You're going to have money in your bank. And for the first time in your life, you're going to think, hey, I'm rich. And you're not rich, but you feel rich. And you're going to get busier. You know, it's funny. University, I remember feeling really busy. And then I got a full-time job. And then I got married. And then I got kids. And now I'm like, I had loads of time at university. Your life is going to get busier. You're going to become more affluent. You're going to become more comfortable. And that is when this pool will start. This is when the drift will begin. I want you to imagine I get a frog and I throw the frog into a pot of boiling water. What does the frog do? He leaps out straight away. But if I put the frog in the cold water and start to gradually heat it up, eventually he will cook to death. The water will become lukewarm and then too hot. And I just want to just lay this out tonight that whenever you leave university, that's when you will be put in the, the pot of cold water. And over time, if you're not careful, you'll lose your zeal and your drift from the Lord. And I just really want to make you aware of that so that you're wary of it, so that when that happens, you don't let it kill your zeal. The lead is Ian's. They had become spiritually bankrupt. Look what Jesus says to them again in the passage. What a description. Verse 17, you say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. 
You're rich, but you don't realize that you're spiritually bankrupt. So what's the solution if we become spiritually bankrupt? If you're here tonight and you're lukewarm, you're here tonight and, and you feel you're spiritually dead or spiritually bankrupt, what is the solution? Well, Jesus tells us the solution in verses 18 and 20. Look at verse 18. I counsel you then to buy from me gold refined in fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. I counsel you to come to me. Come to me again. Come to me again and receive these things. Come to me again and find refreshment and joy once more. For me, there's lots of things I like to do when I lose my zeal. I like to evangelize. I find that excites me. I like to read biographies of, of men and women who've done great things for the Lord. That always energizes me. I like to try to do things for the Lord that can only happen if he's in them. That excites me. And all those things, they might be good for restoring your zeal, but what you really need is to take a look at Jesus once more on that cross to glory in what he's done, to let him produce zeal in your life. Let me finish by pointing you to a picture. Um, this picture is called The Light of the World, and uh, I don't normally have pictures like this, especially in a Presbyterian church, but, but this is a picture called The Light of the World, and it's in St. Paul's Cathedral. And whenever you look at the picture in the wholeness, it's a, it's a huge one. It's a big, long picture, uh, and it's in an arc shape. And what you're seeing there is you're seeing Jesus, and you see his right hand, that, that, that's tapping on a door. And, and if you look around the door, you see all the ivy growing. It's a door that hasn't been opened for a while. And this picture, it's to represent what Jesus says in Revelation 3.20, which is what he's saying to you tonight. Look at the picture and listen to Jesus' words. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person, and they with me. Maybe you're here tonight, and you do the religious thing, and you come to church, but you've had no real fellowship with Christ for a long time. Maybe you're here tonight, and you're aware that, that Christ has been shut out of your life. Maybe you're here tonight, and you know that you've drifted from him, and you feel that the door is closed to him, well, Christ stands at the door of your life and he says, if you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we'll have fellowship again. Friends, look to Jesus. Look to him and delight in him and let him fill you with zeal and glory for his name. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, you know that we all go through seasons where we feel lukewarm, seasons when we're apathetic, seasons when we're indifferent, seasons when we're just a bit blunt and dead in our faith. But Lord, I would pray tonight for anyone here whose spiritual temperature is normally lukewarm. And I pray tonight, Lord, that as they look to Jesus again, 
that as they remember his cross and his death and his resurrection, as they remember afresh all that he's done for them, that you would stir up zeal for them, for the Lord in their hearts again. Lord, for anyone who feels that they haven't had fellowship with Christ for a long time, would they be reassured that he stands at the door and knocks and that if they open the door, he'll just walk in like an old friend and lovingly have fellowship with them again. Give us zeal for Jesus and protect us from apathy and lukewarmness. We pray this in his name. Amen.